Guardian Unlimited. Questions to the Prime Minister. Stephen Crabb. Number one, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, sir, before listening to my engagement, I'm sure that the whole House will join me in sending our deepest sympathy and condolences to the family and friends of Marine Gary Wright of the Royal Marines, who was killed in Afghanistan last Thursday. He was a fine soldier. He was doing an extraordinary job, and this country should be very proud of him. Mr. Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I will have further such meetings later today. Yesterday marked 11 years that the leader of Burma's democracy movement, Aung San Suu Kyi, has been incarcerated, during which time the widespread use of torture, rape, execution have continued by the regime. I congratulate the tangible efforts that the government have been making, particularly at the UN, on Burma. But would the, would the Prime Minister today commit to closing the loophole that allows companies to use British-dependent territories Absolutely. to invest in Burma and help prop up that wicked, evil regime? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, let me uh, pay tribute to what the Honourable Gentleman has done on campaigning on this issue. Uh, and he's right in saying that the British Government continue to raise this in the United Nations and in all the international forums we possibly can. In respect to the particular point that he, he raises, I'm perfectly happy to have a look at it uh, and correspond with him. There may be many different ramifications of doing any such action. We have to be careful what consequences there are for British companies. But in general terms, it has been the policy of this Government to try and make sure that we isolate as much as possible the Burmese regime and that we support fully those campaigning for human rights and democracy in that country. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. In the last year alone, nearly 8,000 families in North East Derbyshire have had their incomes boosted by the Working Family Tax Credit. Can the Prime Minister assure me that any future tax policy under this Government will safeguard this much-needed extra cash for families in my constituency? Well, I, I uh, can certainly assure my honourable friend of that. It, it will be extremely important to make sure that we continue with policies that have helped families throughout the country, millions of families throughout the country, that have helped families get off benefit and into work because that is important. And certainly so far as this side is concerned, we will not make uncosted um, and uncostable commitments, billions of pounds worth of tax cuts that could only be afforded by depriving some of the poorest in our society of the help they're currently getting. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I, can I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to the soldier killed in Afghanistan? Our thoughts should be with Gary Wright's family. Three years ago, the government said that the youth justice system had been totally transformed. Yesterday, the Chief Inspector of Prisons said the system was approaching breaking point. Who's right? Over the past few years, according actually to the National Audit Office, I'm just about to answer. According to the National Audit Office, in 1997, the system was a shambles. In 2004, it had made substantial improvement. The fact is, the fact is we have managed to reduce dramatically the amount of time it takes to get young offenders fast-tracked through the justice system. We've expanded the amount of secure accommodation. We're making sure now, although it's causing pressures in the system, it's true that those who breach ASBOs are given a custodial sentence. We believe that's right. That's why we'll continue investing in our youth justice system and continue making improvements. I think the Prime Minister lives on another planet. After nine years, there are no custodial places left for young people, secure units are completely overcrowded, and the Youth Justice Board warn of meltdown. Any halfway competent government would have seen this coming. Yeah. That 
let's look at adult prisons. Will the Prime Minister confirm that we've run out of prison places? Last year they scrapped prison ships, now they're bringing them back, and police officers are being taken off the streets to become jailers. Who is responsible for this complete failure of planning? First of all, before he leaves the youth justice system, the best way of testing it is the National Audit Office reports that are done consistently on it. I just point out to him again, the latest National Audit Office report says indeed the system has been substantially transformed since this government came to power. Now, as for the places in adult prisons, we have expanded those dramatically. We have, of course, toughened up the sentences. He, of course, voted against those measures to toughen up the sentences. And it's true we're going to have to expand them even more. That's why we're about to invest in another 8,000 prison places. Of course, he's unable to commit to that because of his tax cut policy. If he wants to talk about cuts, why don't we talk about the 21,000 jobs he's cutting in the NHS? Speaker, I'm happy to come here and talk about his NHS cuts any day of the week. Now, Prime Minister, back to prison. Actually, that's got a certain ring to it. In May, the Prime Minister did something unprecedented. He put the Chancellor in charge of protecting the public. I quote, the Chancellor will coordinate government policy to ensure families and communities have the protection and the security they need. What on earth has the Chancellor been doing? explain what has been happening. As a result of the Chancellor running, the strongest economy this country has ever seen, then we are able to make the investment in the National Health Service, in educations and yes, in prisons. But his policy, which is to share the proceeds of growth between investment and tax cuts, that's his policy, isn't it? That policy would mean cuts in the health service and in prisons and in education. And if he wants to debate the National Health Service, there aren't 20,000 jobs being cut from the National Health Service. No, there are not. There are 300,000 extra people working in the National Health Service today. This party is committed to increasing investment in the National Health Service, and he is not. The Prime Minister talks about the Chancellor's record. The Chancellor told us he was going to freeze the assets of terrorists. He couldn't even stop Abu Hamza buying a house while he was in prison. <laughs> the youth justice system's in meltdown. The prison system can't cope. Dangerous prisoners are released early. No proper border controls. Isn't this the truth? It doesn't matter who's in charge. Blair Brown, Brown Blair, this country isn't safe under Labour. spent rather a long time preparing that, I suspect, this morning. But let me just point out to him. We do remember that under the last Tory government, crime doubled. Right? Under this government, crime has fallen. We have introduced tougher measures, that it's true, have put more people into prison, but every one of those tough measures he opposed. So there's no point in him coming to the dispatch box now and saying, why aren't we taking tougher action on crime? Every time we try to take tougher action, he's opposed to it. And the truth is, he talks tough, but he votes soft. Order. Order. Claire Curtis Thomas. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My, uh, my right honourable friend will be aware that at this precise moment, I have a hundred rather, naked, rather attractive naked men outside my front door. Oh. This, uh, this 
internationally renowned exhibition by Anthony Gormley has attracted 600,000 visitors to the Sefton coastline and much needed money. We don't want to lose this exhibition, but unfortunately, local Tory councillors last week threw out the planning act. Would my, would my honourable friend reassert his commitment to supporting the arts, recognising that it's a serious driver for economic renewal, and do everything that he can to enable Merseyside to enjoy this exhibition during our capital year of culture? Uh, well, um, first of all, uh, can I congratulate... Uh, those responsible, Anthony Gormley and others, for, uh, was it 100 naked men outside my honourable friend's uh, door, which is a lot better than what's outside my door, which is the media every morning. Um, but can I just say to him, with uh, my apologies for that, but I suppose we should be grateful that at least they're clothed. Um, but the point that my honourable friend makes is absolutely right. And one of the reasons why it's important we continue investment in arts and culture is that this is not a peripheral issue for us. It's an absolutely central part of creating a more vibrant and decent society, and we'll continue to invest in it. Campbell. Uh, may I begin by associating myself and my right hon and honourable friends with the expressions of condolence and sympathy which we've just heard from the Prime Minister. When may we expect the Attorney-General to make application for the extradition and trial in Britain of those American soldiers against whom there's a prima facie case for the unlawful killing in Iraq of the ITN journalist Terry Lloyd. For very obvious reasons, I think it would be wrong for me to comment on anything the Attorney General may do in relation to that case. Um, once again, however, I would like to extend my deepest sympathy to Mr Lloyd's family. Sir Mingus Campbell, not much uh, comfort there, I think. <laughs> As last night, as recently as last night, the government assured us that the extradition treaty with the United States would facilitate justice. Isn't what we have here a fast-track process, but a fast-track process that only goes one way? Yeah. I think he's, uh, stretching reality a bit there, because the fact of the matter is, we were asked to make sure that the US Senate and, and Congress ratified the treaty, and we've uh, done our best to ensure that that happens. But let me just point out to him that I think it's important when we talk about American soldiers or indeed our, our own soldiers, and I, I've repeated again my sympathy to Mr. Lloyd's family, but I'd just like to make it clear that not just the, the British soldiers, but those American soldiers and the soldiers of many other countries who we're fighting alongside are doing a superb job in very, very difficult circumstances. Now, that, none of that will, of course, excuse anything wrong that has happened. But I don't think it's right that we have a debate about armed forces, particularly when they're losing significant numbers of troops, as the American forces are, without paying tribute to their heroism and their courage and their bravery in defense of democracy in Iran. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does my right honorable friend agree with me that 10 years of economic stability has made it possible for us to look and plan for the long term. In my own constituency, I've had £150 million of infrastructure and I've got £100 million coming in the next two years. But we also need much social housing. And would he also agree to look to toughen the Section 106 because so many times I'm told there's to be a school or a medical centre or a sports field or a village hall, but when the houses are built, there's never a Section 106 delivered. Well, I, 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 mean, I totally uh, understand the point my honourable friend's making. And indeed, he illustrates exactly why the planning gain supplement is an important part of, of um, government policy. 
And it's also true that with the Section 106 applications, we're looking to see how we can strengthen that, and there may be announcements on that in the, in the weeks to come. But the point that he's making, too, about the investment in infrastructure is absolutely right. Where we are building more homes, and we need to build more homes, it's important we're matching that with infrastructure investment in schools uh, and in hospitals and in roads and so forth. And that's why, again, it is important we increase the investment in areas like my honourable friends rather than cut it. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. For almost a year, we have been pushing repeatedly for a climate change bill. In January... Yeah. If you want to get something to happen in this country, get the Leader of the Opposition to suggest it. In January, the Prime Minister rejected the idea. He even said it was a trifle dodgy. Can he confirm today that the Government will have a climate change bill in the Queen's speech? obviously say what will be in the Green speech before it's published, but what I can say is this, the reason I described his proposals, as I'm surprised I said a trifle, I think uh, dodgy would have been the accurate description of them, is that his proposals mean, first of all, he's against the climate change levy. We would never have been able to make the progress we have without it. But secondly, he is asking for statutory binding year-on-year targets, which are very, very difficult to deliver because of the changes that may happen on any one year that would render them extremely difficult to achieve. Why can't we just have a straight answer? Are we getting a bill, yes or no? Can the Prime Minister confirm that he's not going to water it down? Will it include the two things that really matter? Will there be annual targets and will there be an independent body that can measure them and adjust them in the light of circumstances? Can we have a proper climate change bill, not some watered-down version? First of all, the reason I cannot give commitments on that, obviously, is because we haven't published the Queen's speech yet. I would have thought he would be aware that it would be in the Queen's speech that that would be announced. Now, let me just go back to the point that he is making. Yes, of course... As a result of the action that we're taking, which is a huge investment in renewable energy, in energy efficiency, in the climate change levy, which has reduced, as I say, dramatically um, what would otherwise have been uh, the CO2 emissions and the greenhouse gas emissions, of course, all of that is absolutely vital. But it's also got to be practical and workable. And that is why we will make sure that any proposals we come forward with, we are able to make sure we get the reductions we need in CO2 emissions. And remember, this country will meet and exceed its Kyoto targets, one of the very few countries in the world to do so. But it's also got to be entirely compatible with the interests of business and consumers as well. And as for the proposals that he has, I mean, I read carefully when he introduced his tax proposals last week, if I, if I may, very quickly. He began... No, it's just... It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting example. It's an interesting example of how government should not make policy. That's the reason I'm <laughs> citing it. In the, morning, in the morning, he was saying that green taxes on pollution will rise to pay for reductions. By the afternoon, he was saying, or his shadow chancellor was, I'm very conscious that some green... Well, I assume they're on the same side, roughly. <laughs> By the, afternoon, by the afternoon, he was saying that some, some green taxes are regressive. They fall primarily on the poor in society. And by the evening standards, by the evening standards last edition, they were saying the Tories today hurriedly backed away from slapping higher tax on cheaper flights. So if that is an example of his policy making, we certainly won't follow it. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Lord, uh, David Anderson. Question number four, Mr. Speaker. My special envoy for human rights in Iraq recently met the Iraqi Minister for Civil Society and reiterated our full support for the right to form free and fair unions. She also made the same point when she met a group of Iraqi women trade unionists on International Women's Day. And as my honourable friend knows, and I think he was present at the same launch, uh, which is a TUC pamphlet celebrating the life of Hadi Saleh, the International Secretary of the Iraqi Federation of Trade Unions, who was murdered in Iraq, almost certainly by former Saddamis, in January 2005. And I would like to take this opportunity to congratulate my honourable friend and, indeed, those in the TUC that have campaigned for free and fair trade unions in Iraq, and also all those who continue to strive for free and fair trade unions in difficult circumstances today. David Anderson. I welcome those words from the Prime Minister, but is he aware of the Iraqi Government Decree 8750, which was issued last year, which I quote, the Government of Iraq will take control of all monies belonging to trade unions and prevent them from dispensing any such monies. Does my right hand friend agree with me that this is anti-democratic and will he do all in his power to, con to convince the Iraqi government to rescind this initial legislation. Yeah. Well, we are indeed uh, making those points to the Iraqi government now. And my honourable friend is absolutely right to draw attention to the fact that it's important there are no inhibitions on free Iraqi trade unions. But I'm, I know that he too um, would join with me in celebrating the publication of this pamphlet, which shows that despite all the problems in Iraq today, the absolute transformation of the position of trade unions in Iraq today as opposed to those um, conditions under Saddam Hussein. And one of the most powerful things about this pamphlet that I urge honourable members to read is that it is a very, very great antidote to all those who say that nothing has improved um, since the fall of Saddam. And it makes quite clear the appalling brutality people were subject to, particularly trade unionists and others under Saddam, and how, with all the difficulties, that is changing in Iraq today. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Will the Prime Minister agree to put an end to the scandal that allows Post Office Limited to privatise profitable Crown offices such as Chalton Post Office without any consultation with local residents or stakeholders? I think it is important that the Post Office is able to take the decisions that they consider necessary in running a proper business. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Yesterday, I was lobbied by my constituent, Janine MacDonald, who had paid for her own Herceptin treatment for early-stage breast cancer until our PCT agreed to pay. Is my right honourable friend aware that there is, despite the very great improvements that we have made in breast cancer treatment, still a postcode lottery in respect of the repayment of those funds made by patients for Herceptin, as indeed there is for wigs and prosthesis, and even more importantly, for genetic screening. I'd ask my right honourable friend if he would look into this matter and endeavour to ensure that all breast cancer patients receive equal access to all treatments. I must certainly uh, will look into the point my honourable friend makes, and of course she is right in saying that um, it's our intention to get rid of the postcode lottery in um, the prescription of drugs, and of course there has been enormous um, changes made in breast cancer over the past few years, which is why um, so many more people are able to survive it. It's important too, there is a huge investment going in um, on drugs and on treatment throughout um, the National Health Service, but the point she raises is a very valid one, and I'm happy to look into it and get in contact with her. John Barron. Yeah, yeah, Thank you, yeah, Mr. Yeah, Speaker. Yeah, yeah. 
Regardless of uh, whether the original decision to invade Iraq was right or wrong, given the comments by, significant comments by General Sir Richard Dannett and the fact that everyone except this House seems to be discussing the current situation in Iraq and possible policy options going forward, will the Prime Minister come to the House and lead a full and proper debate in, in the government's time on Iraq? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the Leader of the House um, said the other day what time would be available for debating Iraq, but of course I'm happy to debate Iraq at any point in time. Indeed, we do regularly in the exchanges in this House and elsewhere, and the Queen's speech will give us an opportunity to do so again. But I have to say to him, let me make one thing absolutely and abundantly clear. There will be no change in the strategy of withdrawal from Iraq only happening when the Iraqi forces are confident that they can handle security. To do anything else would be a complete betrayal, not just of the Iraqi people, but of all the sacrifices that have been made by our armed forces over the years. And it is important, I mean, I know this is a, a subject obviously of huge controversy still, but I have to say that it is important just occasionally to remember the utter barbarity of the regime we got rid of and the fact that for at once today in Iraq people at least have the chance to have a proper functioning democratic society and we should stand by them, stick by them in achieving it. Thank you Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, the more a country trades, the more prosperous it becomes. Does the Prime Minister therefore agree with me that European enlargement is something we should celebrate? I do. I think that European enlargement, uh, for all its um, difficulties, and we see some of those in the discussions, obviously, in um, Bulgaria and Romania yesterday, nonetheless, enlargement has been a chief British foreign policy priority. It is right for Britain. It is right for Europe. And what is happening in these countries is that they are making enormous strides forward. I mean, incredible strides in their economy and in their democracy and their politics, which would be completely impossible unless they've been allowed into the European Union. So we championed enlargement then, uh, we champion it now, and we will continue to champion it in the future. Edwin Saunders, does the Prime Minister acknowledge that his attempts to reform and improve the Child Support Agency are failing? And if I was to write to him, would he look into a case of one of my constituents who, due to a computer error, is going to have to wait a full 12 months before she can receive money that her ex-partner has already paid? Well, it's precisely because of the, the difficulties in the CSA that we have um, taken the steps to, to set up the Henshaw Inquiry, and that report has now been received. And we're considering, it's considering and will act upon it. Um, I'm happy to look into the individual case of his constituent, but the CSA is subject to all the difficulties it's been subject to right from its outset, which is why a, a proper and fundamental reconsideration is sensible. Colin Burgoyne. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, last week, the Companies Bill received its uh, third reading in this House, and thanks largely to the efforts of the core coalition and its millions of supporters, a good bill, I believe, has been made that, just that bit better. But I read, I hope I haven't read wrongly, in Tuesday's Financial Times that the CBI and Institute of Directors are now going to nobble the Prime Minister and the Chancellor to drop the clauses they don't like. Can the Prime Minister give me an assurance, I'm sure he will, that when push comes to, <laughs> that when push comes to shove on this really important bill, the primacy of this elected parliament will not be undermined by the lobbying of unelected business uh, leaders? Yeah. Right. Uh, well, it, it looks as if I'm, 
Uh, it looks as if I'm going to get... I'm going to get novelled either way then, I think, probably. Um, but the, the um, commitments we set out in the Warwick Agreement, which have formed the core of this bill, they are commitments we've said we will honour and we will honour. Mate, we uh, Thank you, Mr Speaker. When he's interviewed by the Metropolitan Police, what innocent explanation will the Prime Minister offer for the fact that 80 pence in every pound donated to the Labour Party came from people who were subsequently honoured. No one is I have absolutely no intention of debating those issues uh, with the honourable gentleman. Absolutely no intention at all. I do, however, find it significant that in advance of the Scottish elections next year, he doesn't dare ask a question on Scotland or the result of that election. And that is, and that is because he knows that his policy of ripping Scotland out of the UK would be a disaster for Scotland and the UK. Hundreds of uh, miners and their families in constituencies such as mine in North Durham and my rational friends in Sedgefield have benefited from the COPD scheme which was introduced by this Labour government. Unfortunately, uh, unscrupulous uh, solicitors, including Watson Burton solicitors in Newcastle, uh, in collusion with claims handling firms, are deducting thousands of pounds from victims' compensation. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that the guiding principle should be that victims and their families should receive 100% of their compensation and not have it plundered by unscrupulous solicitors or middlemen? Well, I entirely agree with what my honourable friend says. Of course, it's important that uh, people get the full benefit of the compensation, and I know that any issues that there are, and I think there have been issues in different parts of the country on this, are, are things that we can raise and are being raised with the Law Society. But, of course, the, the main point to make is that literally hundreds of millions of pounds have been paid out to former miners. It's, how much short again? Four billion. Four billion pounds. Thank my honourable friend for that, um, for that prompting. Um, helpful intervention, which is always welcome. Um, but that four billion pounds has meant the difference between a decent life for people who work their lives down in the pits, who suffered injury and often debilitating illness as a result, and it's an indication of the priority that this government attaches to social justice. Simon Burns. Does the, uh, does the Prime Minister recall the helpful answer that he gave me in May of this year concerning the Broomfield Hospital PFI scheme? Is he aware that almost six months have passed and approval has still not been given for that project? I am sure that he is as anxious as I am, my constituents are, that this important scheme is approved and goes ahead. Could he please look at this scheme again and try and expedite approval for it? I am very happy to do so. I mean, the, the the, the reason that, as, as I understand it, over the past few months um, there have been problems with the scheme, and it's a scheme somewhere in the, the region of 170 or 180 million pounds, and I know it would be very uh, worthwhile in the Honourable Gentleman's constituency, but there have been issues to do with the financing of it that I know they are trying to sort out. I'm very happy to look into it again and see what can be done to expedite it. But I know that since the last time he, he asked me about it, there was a, a new dimension that arose in relation to this, and that needs to be sorted out. Daddy Taylor. I would ask my right honourable friend uh, to celebrate with me the fact that a team from Stockton have designed earthquake-proof houses that are being built today in Panyata, Kashmir. 
I would ask my right honourable friend to take up the concern of the team, Dr Ryars, Dr Bloom and Kitchen from Teesside University, that while significant monies and investment appear to be available, that accessing them through a chain of bureaucratic restraints seems nearly impossible. Well, um, again, obviously I don't know the particular circumstances, but I congratulate the team and the work that they've done. I'm very happy to look into whether there are bureaucratic constraints that are preventing this money getting forward or whether there's some uh, other reason. But, of course, I think it's worth pointing out that, that this government and through the Department of International Development have done an immense amount for the relief of those victims from the Pakistani earthquake. And it's extremely important, of course, that we do everything we can to, um, to make progress. I'm happy to look into the point my honourable friend raised. Mr. Clifton Brown. The United Nations instructed Iran to cease nuclear enrichment by the end of August. Since when, nothing has happened. Is the Prime Minister confident he will be able to get this matter back before the Security Council so that a binding resolution, at the very minimum, preventing any further nuclear or military equipment being exported to Iran? And is he confident that he will get the support of Russia and China in doing so? McKinley, that Prime Minister's doing all right in his own. That was a, a late leadership bid there, but anyway. Um, right. The, the, the point that the Honourable Gentleman raises, however, is, is, uh, is an extremely serious one. We are, um, I had an opportunity of discussing this with a very senior official in the Chinese government yesterday. We're working very closely with all the permanent members of the Security Council to make sure we get this back in front of the Security Council and get a proper binding resolution. And I'd like to take the opportunity of saying that when uh, Iran says that the purpose of this is to prevent Iran getting access to civil nuclear power, that is simply not the case. We have made it clear that we will not merely allow but help Iran with a civil nuclear power program, but we will not allow them to acquire material that goes to the development of nuclear weapons capability. That would be in breach of all their international obligations. And the Honourable Gentleman is absolutely right. It is important that we take whatever action is necessary to stop that happening. Order. Guardian Unlimited.